Welcome to the Most Accurate Podcast presented by 444.com. I'm your host. My name is Craig Smith. The music on today's show is a song called The Kilburn High Road by Flogging Molly off their 2002 album Drunken Lullabies. If you want to hear the song in full, click the link in the show notes to the TMAP B-Sides playlist on Spotify. I'm going to be joined shortly by the one and only Evan Silva to talk week eight to break down the week nine waiver wire. But before Evan jumps on, I want to tell you about the big Halloween sale we're running for subscriptions at 444. Until this Thursday, October 31st, all of our subs are discounted to less than a third of the normal price. The Classic plan is only 9 bucks, the Pro plan is only 19 and our comprehensive DFS plan is down to 49 bucks. Just go to 444.com, click the red subscribe button in the top right corner of the page, then just pick the plan that's right for you. I also want to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Fantasy Draft, the only rake-free DFS site in the business. What does rake-free mean? It means that 100% of entry fees at Fantasy Draft are paid out to contest winners. If you want to try them out on a seven-day trial, go to fantasydraft.com, sign up with the promo code 444, that's the number 4, F-O-R, the number 4, and say goodbye to the rake. And we have a new sponsor this week, Sharp Angle Sports. They can help you win betting the NFL with weekly selections from NFL Sharp, James Salinas, the most successful super contest winner of all time. Visit sharpanglesports.com and start winning today. With all that out of the way, it's time to ring in Evan Silva of EstablishTheRun.com. I can't imagine that anybody listening to this isn't already doing so, but you can follow him on Twitter, at Evan Silva. Evan, we talked back in July right when Establish the Run was getting started, and as always, the year just seems to fly by. But it's great to get you back on. How's the season treating you so far? Yeah, man, it's been awesome, awesome, awesome. And it's good to be back with you. You know, we'll, We will rehash at least a, a couple of takes. I know we'll, we'll definitely rehash the Josh Gordon uh, situation. He, he was a guy that I was really high on, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about him when we get to the wide receivers. But we're, we're recording this on Monday, like late afternoon, and I, I'm not like at my peak knowledge on Monday. Like I'm still like in the pro. Like I, I don't know about you, Greg, but like I spend my entire Monday basically trying to figure out every little thing that happened in every single game for like every relevant skill position player, you know, like it, whether it's watching game pass or using pro football focus or like trying to figure out game flow, how much did game flow affect certain games, uh, number of plays that were run, like the chargers ran like 40 plays that explains a big reason for, for why they were so unproductive offensively, like trying to figure out every little thing. And I'd say I'm about halfway through right now. So check out Establish the Run uh, later in the week, and I'll, I'll be at my, my peak uh, knowledge. But right now I'm going on like half strength, just, just a forewarning. Hopefully I don't suck too bad. Well, I appreciate you letting me interrupt your typical Monday schedule to get you on the podcast. <laughs> I, I know that we... we... Wanted to try to record this a little bit later, but you know, just based upon trying to get the podcast out so everybody can hear it, mm-hmm. uh, we had to record a little bit earlier than you may have liked. And so I appreciate you taking the time. But w- one of the things I-, I love about what you just said is that, or th- that acknowledgement of stuff that you don't know existing, right? And this is something mm-hmm. that as fantasy owners, I think we really need to to keep in the back of our mind is to admit when we when we don't know. Uh, I think that a lot of people kind of assume they know everything, and that's really what gets you into trouble, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's nothing worse than like even to myself, like I make an assumption of something that happened on Monday. I go back and look at the situation. Maybe I'll I'll, uh, record a podcast because we do podcasts uh, every Tuesday and there's nothing worse than like sort of assuming that I knew something. And I go back like on Wednesday or Thursday or even Friday or even Saturday. And I'm like, oh, man, I said something wrong. That is definitely something the more and more, you know, as, as I've gotten more seasoned, I don't do that as much, but, you know, I have done that before and 
that's you know just a terrible feeling um, when you like discover that you said something that was like misleading. Not that you were trying to mislead, but you know you said something that you should have done a better job of like fact checking. Yeah, and that stuff happens all the time. It happened to me on last week's podcast. Actually, one of the listeners called me out for a take I had on uh, the Detroit outcome when Marvin Jones had that four touchdown game. I looked at the final score. I like you, I'm kind of scrambling on Monday to get this podcast ready to make sure I have all the show notes good to go for myself and for the guest. And I looked at the final score. I just kind of assumed that part of what fed Marvin Jones big day was game script and game flow. And it turns out that most of the, like half of his touchdowns came when they were either winning or to tie. It wasn't like he was chasing points and that's why he was seeing all those, uh, those scores. It was because Marvin Jones had an exploitable matchup for Detroit against that somewhat overrated Minnesota secondary. And I missed it. The listener called me out on it and I admitted I was wrong. Uh, so uh, just take take all this stuff, listeners, with uh, not a grain of salt, but just give us a little bit of uh, a pass if we do screw up those little details from time to time. It does happen. But um, with yeah. that all out of the way, Evan, let, let's get into week eight. Let's talk about what we just saw. And I want to start with some of these rookie running backs who busted out. I'm wondering how much of this you think is smoke, how much is fire, which of these guys you like going forward, and which guys fantasy gamers might be sleeping on. Uh, the, the first one that jumps out, David Montgomery, 27 carries, 135 yards and a touchdown rushing, five targets for four catches and 12 yards in the passing game, 22.7 points altogether. Is this a changing of the guard moment for David Montgomery? Do you think that he is kind of locked in as that workhorse for the Bears going forward? Yeah, so this was one of the games that I, I have like fully taken in and I watched it and I went through, you know, all the different numbers for it. I mean, it, it was definitely an acknowledgement from Matt Nagy that, you know, this is the way that the Bears need to play. They also had a good matchup though, because the Chargers were missing both of their starting defensive tackles, Justin Jones and Brandon Meebane were out for this game. But, you know, you, you like to see a coach doing that. You like to see mm -hmm. a, a coach attacking his opponent's weaknesses and he did that with david montgomery season high in carries 27 season high in touches 31 i think he had a season high in targets with five matched his season high in routes run with 21 but you know re remember this is a game where the bears had the ball a ton against this chargers team that only ran like 42 plays so that's not going to happen every single time but yeah i mean i think that that was very, very promising usage. But this Bears offensive line has not been able to run block at all. And all of a sudden got a good matchup. We're able to exploit it. Of course, they lost. They lost on a, um, the, the final field goal by uh, Eddie, uh, quote-unquote, Dinero uh, Pinero. <laughs> God, who they spent the entire – I live in Chicago. They spent the entire offseason. It was just embarrassing, like, how much work they put into the kicker. Like, they really thought that they were just a kicker away. But anyway, so I, I kind of like think that that's like their just desserts to to be losing on, you know, continue to lose on field goals after they spent so much time and energy worrying about a kicker when, you know, their quarterback has issues, you know, major, major issues. But, yeah, I think that they'll they will continue to try to be, quote unquote, balanced with David Montgomery as the centerpiece of the offense. Unfortunately, in week nine now, they're heading to Philly and it's a lot easier to run at home. You know, all over this uh, L.A. team coming cross country at 1 p.m. at 1 p.m., missing both of its starting defensive tackles as opposed to going to Philly with, you know, like a top three run defense and trying to run on them. So it's it's a really a dysfunctional offense. And 
I would not say that David Montgomery is trustworthy, but I do think that at least it's nice that Matt Nagy gets it that, you know, he can't be doing what he did in week seven, dropping back Trubisky 50 plus times. Like you're going to need to put the ball in David Montgomery's belly. And they did have some success doing that. Now they got down to the goal line and they're calling like trick plays. I, the offense has just taken a massive, massive step back. And it's not just Trubisky. It's Matt Nagy, too. I mean, I think that he, like, I think he's, like, in his own head. Yeah, that could be the case. It's really weird to see Trubisky not really running it all this season either because that was one yeah. of the things he did well. And you have to hope that they figured this out eventually. But you're right to bring up that offensive line issue for the Bears. They rank 29th in adjusted line yards uh, with their O-line, which is very bad, uh, of course. And... Yeah, I, I just don't see them having that much success against Philly. So it does seem like Montgomery is going to be a bit of a matchups play going forward. Some other rookies that might fit the same bill, Miles Sanders. He had a really nice game, uh, over 20 points, but he did it on very few touches. Only three carries uh, for 74 yards and a touchdown rushing. Three targets for three catches and 44 yards receiving. There was a shoulder injury to Sanders in this game, but Zach Berman of The Athletic reports that Sanders isn't going to miss any time, so that that's nice. But at the same time, what are we supposed to do with a guy like this who is boomer bust every week based upon limited volume? Yeah, so this is a game that I did watch, but I haven't looked at all of the stats, uh, all of the you know the intricate stats in this game. Um, but I, I did look at some like general stats. I think he's got 40-plus receiving yards and four of his last five now. Mm -hmm. And as long as Darren Sproles has been out, he's been very, very active as a receiver. They like him as a pass blocker. And he's been, he's really made some big plays in the passing game. We've even seen him run some vertical routes down the football field. And I think that that's kind of cool. He has struggled, uh, you know, as an interior runner and they've really made a commitment. I think at this point, I think it's, you know, like a serious commitment to Jordan Howard as their, lead like rusher so that leaves miles sanders as sort of a a, a niche back you know and a, a ppr specific like flex option week to week and it, you know the matchups don't even necessarily matter for him which is nice yeah which, which is nice yeah which is nice but he also doesn't have the best floor and because you know you mentioned that that he has the limited volume that's true he's probably going to hover in like the six to eleven touch range every week that's going to make him kind of boom or busty. But, I mean, I, I think that he's there for you as a viable option and not a bad option uh, because he does have that big playability, and they're getting him in space. Yeah, it's almost like Sanders has become the player that we expected Darrell Henderson to be entering the season, mm-hmm. and Henderson's usage is also trending up. He had 11 carries for 49 yards in Week 8, three targets for two catches and 20 yards receiving, only about eight fantasy points, but he outtouched Gurley in this game, 14-11. to 11. In what was pretty much an even snap share split, 32 snaps for Gurley compared to 30 snaps for Henderson, this situation feels different to me than the Sanders one because it does seem like Henderson has a clear role coming into effect here. They really are limiting Gurley's touches. I don't know if that means they're saving him for a playoff push if Gurley actually is hurt now and they have to limit his workload. What's your read on this situation in the Rams' backfield? And it's also been true that Malcolm Brown has been out. Sure, yeah. So, yeah, so when he comes back, I don't know if he'll be active on game days. You know, I think that Daryl Henderson has kind of earned this change of pace role. As for what happened on Sunday, it's possible that the Rams were kind of trying to, like, because they have their bye upcoming. Mm -hmm. Winnable game against the Bengals. 
Right, right. Really winnable game. They may have gone away from what their usual backfield distribution would be. You know, just didn't need to push it with Todd Gurley. And like the one time that they've really pushed it was that Thursday nighter against Seattle when Gurley played like 93% of the snaps and they suffer a quad injury. And, you know, he wasn't available even on a long week for the following game. So I think that they've kind of learned their lesson with him. I just I think he's just he's not the same player mm-hmm. that he used to be, and they're not throwing the ball to their running backs very much in the passing game. There have been like you know one or two games where Gurley has popped up with a big receiving day, but that it just has not been an element of their offense that much this year as it was the past couple of years under Sean McVay. And I think that kind of even extends down to Daryl Henderson because while he's you know he's shown some some bursts and explosiveness as a runner. I would like to see him more incorporated in the passing game. But right now, I think he's got the role that we kind of anticipated that he would have to begin the season immediately after the draft when they traded for him. And then, you know, we went through the preseason. It was He's kind of struggling, and, you know, he's, he's a rookie, and Malcolm Brown was kind of clearly out, out in front of him. But now I think that he is settling into that, that role where he's going to get 11 to 12 touches per game. That's not certain because – Malcolm Brown has been out and we did, we just don't know what the, the impact of his return will be yet. But I think that this is probably their optimal configuration with Todd Gurley as, you know, a guy who they ideally could get 16 to 21 touches per game. And then Daryl Henderson in that nine to 12. And that, that will give him some flex value, but I think that he would actually need Todd Gurley to get hurt in order to be a truly comfortable play. Because even on Sunday, against Cincinnati you really can't can't really draw up a better matchup than that and he still wasn't very good in fantasy the last rookie running back I want to touch on at this point is Devin Singletary he didn't do much on the ground only three carries for 19 yards rushing but he was active in the passing game six targets four catches 30 yards and a receiving touchdown about 13 fantasy points and it does seem like the torch has been passed from Frank Gore with Buffalo. Singletary played 42 snaps on Sunday. Gore only played 18. That's a 68% snap share to 29% snap share. Do you think this is the status quo for Buffalo's backfield going forward now that Singletary is healthy, you know, returning from that injury? It should be. It should be. Joe Buscaglia, who covers, he's covered the Bills for a long time. He's currently with The Athletic, had a great graphic on Devin Singletary and his usage has been so much stronger in the second half of games hmm. as opposed to in the first half. Even on Sunday, he had zero carries and one reception in, uh, in week eight against Philadelphia in the first half. In the second half, he had six touches for 48 yards and a touchdown. On the season, in the first half of games, he has only eight touches total. And then in the second half of games, he's got 21 touches total. I, I, there's not a really a good explanation for that. It's it's very very confusing, and and Muscaglia writes that. I I don't, I don't know. It's it's a very weird split, though. They don't have any like former baseball managers there, you know, bringing in the closer for the Bills. Is, we can't we can, we can rule that out. <laughs> and and I think it's weird that I mean like you would think like Frank Gore would be more of a closer than Devin Singer. Exactly, so, yeah, that's weird. So it doesn't even make sense from from that standpoint. Their usage of him has been weird. I'm not sure that he's totally out of the woods and has overtaken Gore. Gore is just a guy that coaching staffs love, man, because he will blitz protect. He he just does everything right. He doesn't mess up, and they can trust him. So I, I don't think he's going away. I mean, I, I, I'm like you. 
that I'm an optimist about Devin Singletary, and I hope that he becomes a 70% guy, and and you know Frank Gore uh, stays like the 30% guy. But I I, just, I don't know, man. I don't have full confidence, and I'm also a little rattled because I played a bunch of Devin Singletary in Week Seven against the Dolphins. I was like, oh baby, he's gonna explode, and he did like nothing. So I, I might be just shook. Yeah, I mean that's that was the first game back from the injury though, so I think yeah. you can kind of explain that away to some extent. The main concern I have, even if it does get to be a 70-30 split in favor of Singletary, is what if Gore is still getting the money touches at the goal line and not Singletary? Like that touchdown that Singletary had was on a pretty long reception. He was, you know, high stepping on his way to the end zone. That was a fun play to watch, but if you know, he had been tackled at the two, which running back would they have handed the ball off to? I don't know. Like my, my gut says it probably still would have been Gore. And that is a little concerning if you're the Singletary owner. Uh, but let's move on. Let's talk about the other thing that stood out to me from week eight. And that was the impact of weather. And like it or not, weather has been a factor the past couple weeks. And I'm curious, Evan, what your approach is to dealing with weather reports on game days, because you know, not all weather is created equal, and I'm, I'm curious yeah. how you sort through that and, you know, make your lineup and roster decisions based upon weather reports. Yeah, almost always, almost always, weather concern is overblown. It's got to be in the 90%, you know, mm-hmm. 90% range, um, especially when people start talking about it, like, on Tuesday. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. <laughs> and I've talked to, like, really high-stakes DFS players about this, you know, when do you react to it? And uh, my conclusion is that, um, first of all, like wind is really what matters mm-hmm. because even in the rain, now there's a, a level of rain where it becomes, you know, very, very concerning. Like we saw that in the San Francisco Washington game, but uh, rain can get really, really overblown when it's a light rain and just people hear rain, like think about actually playing football, like in the backyard, you know, you, when you're on offense, you get to make the first step. You know where you're going. And so that can actually give you a little bit of an advantage as opposed to like a defensive back backpedaling in a little bit of mud. You know, I think that that can actually help the offense. But the the wind can be a a significant deterrent when we see it up around the 20 mile per hour range. Then that's when I, I really start to get concerned. But then also looking at the totals uh, in the, the betting market. So when the total starts to drop, you start to pull back. Like I pulled back my John Brown exposure quite a bit this past week, you know, due to the, the forecast of when I think it was like somewhere 20 to 28 miles per hour and then gusts up to like 50. And so, you know, I wasn't going to play John Brown anymore. And that, that did pay off, but you know, I've been just as wrong just as many times as I have been right about reacting to the weather. And that's because it's, typically you know more exaggerated uh the the expected impact than the actual impact itself yeah i think you're right to point out the fact that weather only really matters when it's severe and that high winds are definitely the most concerning those hurt long passes and those hurt the kicking game and the other thing i would say is that and this is tied to what you're talking about with the total is that whenever there is very very bad weather you know severely bad weather whether it be rain or snow it just tends to make coaches more conservative and teams more conservative because they're not going to be able to pass as well. Uh, they might punt more often than they would try to kick a field goal so as they don't lose the field position game. And that does have effects on fantasy players that you have to keep track of. Now, sometimes that means that you go for it more often on fourth down. We saw that a lot in that Eagles-Bills game. I think the other thing I would I would say is that 
if you do feel like it is going to be one of those games where weather is going to make teams more conservative, you have to look at how the teams are set up to take advantage of that. Like Eagles-Bills was a really good example because Philadelphia is built to win in the trenches. They have really good guys along the line, both on offense and on defense. And so if you're going to go into a more conservative expectation for that game as a whole, that might lead you to put more emphasis on the Eagles as a good team to play, but more so on their running game rather than their passing game. So you might look at yeah. you might look at Miles Sanders and put him into more lines because of that. So it's not just about the weather, it's about how the effects of the of that weather lines up with the strengths and weaknesses of the teams and the players who are involved in the game. It's it's really kind of a case by case thing and it only really matters if the weather is, you know, crazy bad like we talked about. But I think it is worth talking about now that we're kind of moving through fall and heading towards winter. Evan, let's get into the booms of the week. And I have to start this off with Tevin Coleman, you know, four touchdowns against the Carolina Panthers. I did have Coleman in my Scott Fishbowl lineup. I was pretty stoked to see him go bananas there. But I think there were probably a lot of folks who might have been afraid to start him, afraid of, you know, the Niners in general going into a game against what we thought was a pretty stout Carolina defense. It turns out Kyle Shanahan is just a, a sorcerer. He can scheme plays out of, out of nothing. But uh, what what's your take on the Niners offense? And do you think that this Tevin Coleman usage can continue do you think maybe he's a sell high like what are you doing after this game that they played against carolina yeah i think that what we saw on sunday from san francisco that's you know how kyle shanahan would draw up every single game (laughs) if he could george kittle kind of gets his you know their new number one receiver emmanuel sanders makes just enough plays to impact the game doesn't have you know a ton of targets but you know those targets are efficient Jimmy Garoppolo, you know, doesn't make a ton of mistakes and they run the, the heck out of the ball and they use Debo Samuel like as a like a, a gadget guy. and He rips off some big plays uh, and they and they ride Tevin Coleman and to a lesser extent, Matt Breida and Matt Breida doesn't you know get hurt, obviously. But, you know, Tevin Coleman is clearly the guy that Kyle Shanahan sees as his bell cow back. He really was was rarely that in Atlanta, but Kyle Shanahan always loved them. You know, he handpicked them coming out of Indiana and he started to show like Tevin Coleman, since he came back from his high ankle sprain, his touches have gone up uh, every single week uh, with the exception of last week, because he only finished with 13 because he just scored a touchdown every time he got the damn ball, <laughs> you know, but um, his, his touches were on a steady four week upward trajectory the week before, you know, he wasn't efficient on the ground. But he did have, what, 22 carries and I think 24 touches, something or something in there. Um, so I think that's exactly how – that's like the, the perfect blueprint, uh, what happened last week against Carolina for how Kyle Shanahan wants to run his offense. So a couple other guys who went boom for me, uh, the aforementioned Miles Sanders, uh, Darren Fells, who I was forced into starting uh, in a dynasty league where my tight end depth chart has just kind of been ravaged. Although I oh didn't choose – Oh, my God, you- you ran hot, Greg. You ran hot in week eight. I, I did decide to start Fells over Vance McDonald, which I which was a little contrarian if you looked at like consensus rankings or anything. It was just one of those things where I like the matchup against Oakland. But yeah, Fells uh, hit for me. And then the last guy, Aaron Jones, had a really big game. And you got to love that usage by Jones as a receiver. Do, do you think that fantasy gamers might be inclined to sell Jones, though, based upon the fact that that receiving volume might go down once Devontae Adams returns? Like, how are you handling Jones at this point? That's a really good question. 
I watched this game at a bar, so I have not like gone through and charted everything. So I don't have like strong, strong takes on like the, the touches or usage, but I know that the, the, the coaching staff has maintained at least some uh, affinity for using Jamal Williams. Aaron Jones got banged up in that game, I believe. And I mean, he's kind of been banged up, you know, a, a good amount since entering the pros really. But I thought that Dan Orlovsky made a really astute comparison between the way that Matt LaFleur is using Aaron Jones and the way that Matt LaFleur's, one of his mentors, Sean McVay, has uh, used Todd Gurley in 2017 and 2018. Like, they use him in the outside stone running game um, so, so well. And their offensive line, by the way, the Packers offensive line is just kicking ass. And then they use him a ton on those uh, outside pitch plays, getting, getting him out in space, which we really have not seen from McVay and Gurley this year, but we saw a ton of like on those swing passes with, you know, a bunch of blockers out in front uh, in 2017 and 2018. And I mean, Aaron Jones has not gotten the level of dominant touches overall that Gurley did, but you can see a lot of those same like play designs and Aaron Jones has been so, so effective. See Matt LaFleur talked before the season about using his running backs more in the passing game, which is had been something that the Packers never did under Mike McCarthy. And I think a lot of people attributed that, oh, well, you know, Aaron Rodgers is so aggressive. He's not looking for the check down. Well, now Aaron Rodgers appears to have embraced that. And that's really, really good news for Aaron Jones for as long as he can stay healthy. I mean, he's on just what, like a 20 touchdown pace or something right now. I mean, mm-hmm. that's usually a, a statistic that regresses, I guess. But I think that this offense gets better every week, man. I mean, and I think that that makes some sense because because it's a new offense. You know, Aaron Rodgers and Matt Lafleur are kind of like learning about each other, and you know they're learning about how the players fit, how the, all the pieces fit into this offense. And man, Aaron Jones, I mean, he has benefited more than anyone. I don't think that they're gonna. I don't think that that necessarily is going to get hurt by Devontae Adams. I think that it would be more likely for the other receivers to get hurt as opposed to this super super effective playing style that they that they've got in place with Aaron Jones. Was there a player who you benched in week eight, or maybe someone you faded in DFS that really went off that, you know, you you missed on? Does anybody like that stand out to you, Evan? You know, I I wish I would have had more Kenny Galladay for sure. I thought that the play was actually to go back to Marvin Jones because I didn't think that anyone would play him. I, you know, I think that people in in DFS have gotten much, much smarter Mm -hmm. than the early days. Like, and people are like, no, I'm not going to go back to it tomorrow. Or, you know, I'm not going to go chase those points with Marvin Jones. And I was like, well, maybe now it's time to actually chase the points with Marvin Jones. And that did not work at all. And Kenny Galladay, the you know significantly superior player, just went absolute ham. And, you know, I, I really have filtered out my cornerback wide receiver matchup um, focus. Like, it just doesn't matter that, that much. But for this particular game, I did look into it hard. I don't know, maybe for my own self-confirmation bias. And, you know, I saw that I thought that Janoris Jenkins, who actually has played really well since that terrible Mike Evans game, I expected him to shadow uh, Galladay. And then DeAndre Baker, who's been getting absolutely killed uh, as the number two cornerback for the Giants, the rookie out of Georgia, for him to be on Marvin Jones. And that did not help my, you know, that did not help my uh, my projection there. So I blew that and, um, you know, I always can, I continue to learn stuff every single week of every single season. 
and cornerback wide receiver matchups. Although I'm, I mean, I'm going to continue to look at them, making them a like a primary uh, component of my decision making is something that I continue to do less and less. And then, you know, during the times that I do do it, it ha- it's like just flipping a coin. You know, it's about as good as flipping a coin. And that's not getting us where we want to go and, and can, can even lead us in the wrong direction like it did on Sunday uh, for the Lions receivers. Who was the bust of the week for you, the player who made the biggest or most unexpected negative impact on your fantasy rosters or just on fantasy rosters in general? I watched the game uh, live, uh, the Texans Raiders game. And so I, I wouldn't say that it was it was surprising because I just saw how the game went. But I definitely expected a bigger game from Kenny Stills. Who I played in DFS and you know landed uh, in uh, uh, one of my FFPC uh, main event teams and we started him against the Raiders and all the indications were there. I mean, the usage was going to be there and it was there. Uh, the matchup was there. You know, the Raiders have been have been not getting pressure at all and allowing teams to complete a, a ton of deep passing uh, success against them. The Raiders already had their bye, mind you. They had allowed 32 completions and 20-plus yards, most in the league, despite having already had their bye. They couldn't rush the passer at all. They had just traded Gary and Conley, who had played their most snaps at cornerback. I realized that they traded him, so he, you know, he wasn't playing that well for them. But, I mean, you know, they went with lesser you know, experienced players. Kenny Stills was playing with Deshaun Watson, one of the most aggressive throwers. Then I watched the game, and I understand why Kenny Stills failed. First of all, he had a decent first half. But then just totally disappeared in the second half because the Texans couldn't even handle the Raiders' pressure. And so Deshaun Watson was always under a ton of heat. And, you know, he likes to hold on to the ball. Their vertical passing game just was not there against the Raiders. And I fully expected it to be, but it just was not there. And that's why you saw, like, DeAndre Hopkins catching a ton of short passes. You saw Darren Fells used in the, the short passing game and in the red zone. You saw Duke Johnson used quite a bit. They ran Carlos Hyde way more than they should have. But, you know, they always do that. Sometimes it worked for him. You know, so you're watching the game live. You understand why Kenny Stills failed. But going in, I expected him to have a much bigger game, and and he he didn't do very much at all. Yeah, and meanwhile, Kiki QT is in the doghouse on the sidelines. Yep. Basically a healthy scratch, can't get into the game at all. He, he would have been on my list for bust of the week. But what yep. about Ty Johnson? Uh, because he was one of the hottest waiver pickups last week. And then once it got to game time, he only managed 23 snaps compared to 19 for Trey Carson, 16 for J.D. McKissick. The Lions are a full-blown running back committee based upon this one-game sample. We have to acknowledge that you know one game does not tell the whole story. Maybe this will be different next week. But... What is your take on the Detroit Lions backfield going forward? Just a disaster. Stay away. Absolute disaster. I mean, there is nothing worse than a four-way committee on a team that already struggles to run the ball. <laughs> I guess this is a freaking disaster, man. And a team that wants to run the ball, too. Yeah, they want to, but they can't. I like their passing game, though. I mean, their passing game, and it's been better, I think, than, than anybody expected, really. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Stafford's been great. Yeah, Stafford has been fantastic. Even Amendola kind of laughed at that pickup, but I mean, he's he's been good for them in the slot. Hawkinson isn't running in nearly enough routes. I wish he was running more routes, but he's had some moments. And then Galladay and Marvin have, have been balling. So 
which player's poor performance might make them a good buy low option leading into week nine? Like, I'm looking at Odell Beckham Jr. He's been okay. Yeah. He had seven targets in week eight, caught five of them for 52 yards. But I'm thinking that maybe the OBJ owner in, you know, leagues out there might be taking that performance, you know, with a grain of salt based upon the matchup against New England. That's a really tough defense. Yeah. It just feels like the perception of the Browns' offense has never been worse. And Beckham specifically was such a high-priced pick back in draft season that even though he's been solid given his circumstances, the fact that he hasn't been amazing might be turning fantasy owners against him. That's where my brain is going with OBJ. What do you think about him as a potential buy low? Because the last time you were on the pod back in the preseason, we talked about him as you know not only some player that, a player that we both really liked, but one that we acknowledged had the downside of yeah. you know a new a receiver on a new team and the struggles that often come along with that do you think that his struggles so far are you know based upon that or i mean there are some deeper issues here i think with the browns offense uh, what are you doing with obj do you think he's a good buy low yeah see the moving teams for wide receivers and paulson i think uh, has, has an article mm-hmm. uh, at least from a, a few years ago i think you know it's it's a red flag on a dude when you're trying to sort out how you're going to do rankings. I wanted to put Odell Beckham as my number one receiver. Thank God I did not, you know, because he, so many things added up positively for him entering the season, but there was always that looming red flag that, you know, receivers, when they change teams, it's not always seamless. It's actually, you know, not seamless at like a higher rate than you would even anticipate. And that has been the case for Odell Beckham. But I think that, you know, obviously the problems go much deeper than uh, just the fact that he changed teams because the entire offense has been outside of Nick Chubb, who, by the way, ran like a, like a, a He's awesome. wild animal on Sunday. I mean, he, he was absolutely sensational, but he lost two fumbles in the first quarter. And, I mean, the game was essentially out of reach after that point. But, man, he, he's a baller. I mean, he is an absolute baller. Uh, what a great player. I mean, outside of him... You know, there has been, I mean, they lost David Njoku early on. I thought Rashard Higgins was going to be a big part of this offense. And he missed like six weeks with a mysterious uh, knee slash ankle injury. And, you know, we knew that their offensive line was had question marks, but I don't think we expected it to be this bad. And, you know, it has been, you know, Sam Darnold got made fun of for saying that he was seeing ghosts. Like Baker Mayfield is seeing ghosts because he's he's scrambling to his right consistently even when he's not pressured that's exactly what seeing ghosts is you know you're, you're anticipating pressure that isn't even there so all those things I mean for a guy to be this talented as Odell Beckham to be struggling for fantasy production outside of really two games this season there's got to be a lot of things that are going wrong and a lot of things are going wrong for him with that said you know we looked at the schedule before the show and it, it clears up a little bit. I mean, it doesn't, it's not great. You, you want Chris Harris to get traded by the time that you listen to this podcast. <laughs> if, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're buying low on Odell Beckham and then he plays the bills after that. So it's not the easiest sledding uh, initially. He does have the dolphins on the schedule and the, the Bengals on the schedule upcoming. So look, I think he's a buy low because the opportunity is not going to go away. He's still got good rankings in terms of per-game targets and per-game air yards. And th- those things are, are going to bounce back for him. And I think that Baker will definitely play better in the second half of the season. Well, and you talked about earlier how 
those wide receiver cornerback matchups can be a little coin flippy. So even if he's facing Chris Harris, maybe that is a battle that he can just happen to win for a week. So I think there's hope for Beckham. I think he does qualify as a buy low. Let's touch on some key injuries from week eight next. And we got to start with Chase Edmonds, who injured his hamstring. David Johnson is still ailing. The Cardinals traded for Kenyon Drake. So what are we doing with this backfield? I feel like the trade there is not good news for Edmonds. But what do you think? Yeah, it's not good news. I mean, these guys, are they're, they're not going to play. Chase Edmonds and David Johnson are not going to play on Thursday Night Football against San Francisco. And then I think we'll, we'll probably get both guys back. But, yeah, that trade for Kenyon Drake, I mean, I realize that the Cardinals are, are like kind of desperate theoretically for running back help. But it just it doesn't it, – it didn't seem like a two-week Band-Aid or really maybe even a one-week Band-Aid because – I think they have their bye in week 10. It's week 12 they have their bye. So they still have a few games oh, to go. Oh, okay. Okay, okay, okay. So we've got week 9, week 10, and week 11. Okay, well, I don't know. Maybe he'll be maybe he'll be the dude for the next three weeks. The problem is, is in those weeks, he faces San Francisco, Tampa Bay, and then San Francisco again. Three of the better running <laughs> defenses in the league. So at least he's a good pass catcher, I guess. Oh, man. And uh, how about Christian McCaffrey, though? Uh, having a, a monster day against San Francisco. How good is he? Unbelievable. Yeah, it, I think he was the answer to the which running back should you take first overall. And, and at this point, it seems pretty clear to yeah. me. Do you agree? Oh, yeah. I mean, because he's like outscoring the, the field by like by like seven points per game. I mean, Dal, Dal, Dalvin has been great. Dalvin has been great. But he was never really in that conversation. I've seen leagues where, it, where people have both because you could get – Cook yeah. at times at the end of the second round and so if you got McCaffrey second or third and then got Dalvin Cook on the swing back in the second round like I don't know how you lose with the roster like that like it, I, I mean I know how it's possible but right that, that's man that's got to be the pinnacle of of early round starts for 2019 fantasy football uh, but we got off track let's talk about right. some other injuries uh, Brandon Cooks uh, suffered a concussion in week eight and this is his third concussion since week 13 of 2016. So he had one in that week, and then he had one in the postseason of 2017. Now he's got another here, week five of 2019. This is not good. I mean, normally I would look at, you know, the upcoming bye week for the Rams in week nine and expect Cook to be right, Cooks to be right back out there in week 10. But do we need to be a little bit more cautious with him? Maybe look to pick up Josh Reynolds off of waivers? Yeah, maybe. I think it could just lead to a bigger role for Gerald Everett. Hmm. But certainly, just in in terms of like a straight playing time, Josh Reynolds would be the guy who ends up taking the biggest jump. Um, so yeah, I think like in deeper leagues, like in the Scott Fishbowl, Josh Reynolds probably should be owned right now, even though they're on their buy. I think that this is the time to grab Josh Reynolds. I don't think you have to you know try to you don't need to try to spend a ton of fab on him, but uh, he might be and uh, end up being worthy of like a wide receiver four start. For you know, for for a little while, uh, pending the clearance of Brandon Cooks, but I think it really could help Gerald Everett because I think that they could re- end up running two more two tight end sets, and their two tight end sets have been very very good with Higby and Everett on the field, and uh, Cooper Cup and Robert Woods as their main wideouts. What about Royce Freeman who injured his shoulder in Week Eight? I don't know exactly what the outlook is for this. I mean, we're gonna have to wait a little, little bit longer to see what the practice reports look like for the Broncos, but. I'm just curious what you think about Philip Lindsay if Freeman were to miss time. Like, how high would Lindsay climb up your running back hierarchy uh, if that were to happen? Oh man, I mean, I think he would be like up up in like the top six conversation. 
you know, the offense isn't great, but give me 25 touches of Philip Lindsay, like, and I'll, I'll take it every single time. But yeah, Royce Freeman, Royce Freeman has kind of been like an underrated fantasy player this year. Uh, he's top 20 in PPR entering week eight. He, he only had one touchdown, uh, but he had, he'd been catching some passes. He'd been like a reliable kind of low end RB2 flex play. Uh, but yeah, I mean, pulling him out of the offense, man, smash the button on Philip Lindsay. Let's turn over to the defensive side of the ball uh, for the Texans. Uh, JJ Watt tore his peck and he's out for the year. This was already a defense that was in a lot of trouble. And when I look at this news that JJ Watt is going to be missing the rest of the year, I, I think two things. One, I want to start guys against the Texans even more. And two, I might be even more inclined to start the passing game options for the Texans just because I can envision more and more shootouts continuing to happen in those mm-hmm. matchups. Are you on the same page there now that Watt is hurt? Absolutely. I mean, that was my first thought that it could actually help the Texans offense. And the Texans offense has been coming around their, their passing game. You know, a lot of people were disappointed with DeAndre Hopkins and, you know, Will Fuller was just dropping everything in sight, except for the one game where he caught everything and he went for over 200 yards and three touchdowns. But it, it looks like he's going to continue to be out for a while. But I think it could help Kenny Stills, and I think it could help uh, DeAndre Hopkins and Deshaun uh, Watson and Duke Johnson a little bit because I think that he he had been having a good season, and they are so banged up in the secondary. It's unbelievable. They've been without Jonathan Joseph and Bradley Roby. They're starting cornerbacks due to hamstring injuries, and you know hamstring injury for a cornerback that that's not good. You know, that's something that could maybe linger even, you know, for the rest of the season. And then the third cornerback, Lonnie Johnson, uh, rookie out of Kentucky, he suffered a concussion on Sunday against the Raiders. And, you know, then they lost their best player up front and they already traded Jadavion Clowney. They're, I mean, their defense is like trash right now. And, uh, they're, yeah, they're going to have to compensate for that, especially when they face uh, good offenses that, man, I'm telling you, in this Raiders-Texans game, Raiders wide receivers were running wide open through the back end of the Texan secondary. And Derek Carr was never under pressure. It was a debacle. Their defense was so, so bad. The Texans defense was just awful. Across the division, another team that suffered multiple secondary injuries were the Jacksonville Jaguars. DJ Hayden, their slot corner, hurt his shoulder. Ronnie Harrison, their strong safety, hurt his neck. Jalen Ramsey is already gone, right? They traded him. So... This is another situation where I think we have to go stock up for all passing games that are facing the Jaguars, and especially for slot receivers, now that Hayden is hurt. And we also need to go stock up for Gardner Minshew for the passing game with the Jaguars for all the same reasons we like the Texans' passing game. And lo and behold, they play each other next week in London. This is this is great for fantasy, but not so great for those two defenses. Do you have any players in particular on the Jaguars that you're looking to, you know, slot into your DFS lineups or get into your seasonal lineups uh, now that, you know, maybe we might be seeing even more passing from them? Yeah, DJ Shark has been a little bit quiet lately, and I think we're going to see him uh, wake up. I'd like to see them make a move here before the trade deadline, maybe for like O.J. Howard, maybe Robbie Anderson. Like, I think that they need to add someone in their passing game because D.D. Westbrook is now – He's banged up. I don't know how long he's going to be out for. Chris Conley, he's been, you know, he's had some moments, and you know, may, maybe he'll continue to like. He he went for through a real big stretch before last week where he just didn't do anything for like 
you know, four or five games. And that's always been kind of who he is, like even going back to college. So, and I've always kind of liked Keelan Cole and he stepped up on Sunday. So I, I would like to, I mean, he's, he's an interesting guy, but I would like to see them add one more piece to their passing game uh, because their tight ends have just really been non-existent. Yeah, and whoever ends up being the primary pass catchers for that offense, whether they make a trade or not, I think that is an offense you want to be invested in down the stretch. They have Houston this coming week in London, then they have the bye, and after that they're at Indy, at Tennessee, and then it starts to get really good. Tampa Bay, the Chargers, Oakland, and then Atlanta in week 16, which, I mean, if they know what's good for them, they'll be they'll be airing the ball out against the Falcons. So this is a passing offense that... I think stock is going up. We have to project them uh, well going forward, but uh, we'll have to wait and see which receivers are going to be, uh, you know, kind of benefiting the most from uh, all these these injuries that have happened. Before we dive into uh, the waiver wire a little deeper, uh, let's take a quick break for the sponsors of the show. Uh, the first one is Fantasy Draft, the only rake-free daily fantasy site in the business. They're running the largest rake-free contests out there each and every week, and all told, Fantasy Draft is regularly paying out millions of dollars in prizes, and all those winnings are rake-free. That's right, Fantasy Draft is the only daily fantasy site with no management fees taken out of the prize pools, and this isn't just a limited promotion. 100% of Fantasy Draft's contests are rake-free. Meanwhile, other DFS sites can raise their rakes, they can squeeze the prize pools, make it harder for you to win. But at Fantasy Draft, the days of paying up to 16% of your entry fees to the house, those are over. Sign up at FantasyDraft.com today with promo code 444, and you'll get a free 7-day trial on your first $1,000 of rake-free entry fees. That's FantasyDraft.com with promo code 444, the number 4, F-O-R, the number 4. Don't miss your shot at millions of dollars in rake-free contests this season. Start playing at FantasyDraft.com today. Today's episode is also brought to you by Sharp Angle Sports. They are the exclusive home for NFL picks from James Salinas the most successful Super Contest winner of all time. Not only did Salinas win the Westgate Super Contest in 2015, but he finished 3rd in 2016 and 26th in 2018. Over the last four years, picking 85 games a year, he's compiled a remarkable record of 63.3% against the spread. That's really impressive. There's only one place to get James Salinas' NFL against the spread and over-under selections each week, and that's sharpanglesports.com. Visit the site today. All right, Evan, let's talk Week 9 waivers. The teams on by this week are Atlanta, Cincinnati, the Los Angeles Rams, and the New Orleans Saints. And we are going to try to stick to low ownership players available in at least 50% of Yahoo leagues. But uh, you can feel free to go off the board if there are some other players you want to mention. Uh, Let's start at running back. And I want to bring up two guys who may not necessarily be hot, hot pickups this week, but guys who I feel like need to start entering into the conversation uh, when we talk about waivers. That's Kareem Hunt. Slated for a week 10 return for Cleveland, and Darius Geis slated for a week 11 return for Washington. Do either of these guys move the needle for you? I, we talked about how Nick Chubb has been so, so good. I don't know if I really expect Kareem Hunt to cut into that workload too much, but maybe you feel differently. And then with Geis, I don't know. I don't know if I really want to be invested in Washington at all, really. Yeah, that's the thing with Darius Geis, man. And, you know, I've started to get like questions about Darius Geis and. And he just, he's been hurt ever since he came into the NFL, too. Like, do you really trust him to come back and stay, even, like, make it through one game healthy? I mean, it's it's been really bad for him. And he was a guy that I liked a lot coming out of LSU. He, he did what didn't have quite the versatility of Ezekiel Elliott, but I thought at times he looked like Ezekiel Elliott as a runner. Um, really decisive and an aggressive runner and always finished his runs and, you know, above average speed and could move laterally um, and maybe was even an underrated pass catcher. But, 
you know, it just really hasn't happened for him. And this offense is such a debacle, you know, and their, their defense isn't good either. So they end up falling behind in games and Case Keenum's got a concussion now. And, you know, do we really expect Darius Geist to jump in and uh, take everything away from Adrian Peterson and uh, Chris Thompson is there to, to pull away targets? Like, just name, you know, name the concern, and he's got it with Darius Geis. Like, literally every concern in the book. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, you could stash him. I mean, he certainly should be owned in, like, you know, Scott Fishbowl. He certainly, certainly, certainly should be owned in um, uh, FFPC, you know, uh, Football Guys Championships and main event where, uh, you know, you've got, like, 20-man rosters. But, you know, a lot of people play in leagues where there's only four or five bench spots, and, even even in those, I think he's pretty fringy. Uh, and then Kareem Hunt comes back. He's going to be healthy. We know he's good. You know, we've seen him be good in the NFL. We, we've we seen this Browns running game be good. We've seen Nick Chubb be good. But, you know, running backs can get injured. And, you know, I don't think that Nick Chubb is any lock, especially on how big of workloads he's been getting, to stay healthy for the entire season. Um, I do think that there there should be some concern that Kareem Hunt cuts into his workload. I think that at very least he will get what, you know, Dontrell Hilliard and Dearness Johnson have been getting uh, from week to week, which is like, I don't know, three to five touches, but I think he'll end up, I mean, Kareem Hunt's good. So, I mean, I expect him to, to eventually wind up in like the seven to 10 touch range and Nick Chubb to take a little bit of a hit. Before the break, we talked about how Kenyon Drake got traded to the Cardinals. Now, the primary beneficiary of that appears to be, at this point, Mark Walton, who's only 28% owned. Kalen Balazs, the other running back there in Miami, is 9% owned. Walton's actually been pretty usable over the past couple weeks in fantasy, and we'll have to wait and see how he does on Monday Night Football. Again, we're recording before that game, but are you interested in these guys off the waiver wire from Miami? Speaking of situations that we don't want to be involved in, right? Yeah, it's, it's it's another situation where... It's almost the same analysis as I just said for for Darius Geis, almost. Um, except that uh, we know that Mark Walton right now is healthy, and um, he's got a fairly secure role. So I, I think that Mark Walton is like you know he's always just going to be a fringe flex play on a team that is that bad. But he he definitely should be owned. I mean, I would own him ahead of Darius Geis right now. Okay, uh, how about Trey Carson? After he kind of surprised us in Week 8, taking over the majority of work in the Lions' backfield, what sort of fab expenditure would you be willing to make on a player like that? Uh, we, we noted how it's kind of just a mess in general. Are we talking like a $0 bid, a $1 bid? Do you expect Carson to continue to lead that backfield in touches? Yeah, I just let someone else pick him up, you know. I mean, Okay. All right, let's move on to wide receiver. And I want to start this section off with Philip Dorsett. He's probably owned in most competitive leagues. He's at 50% ownership on Yahoo. But he's got to be one of the first wide receivers we look to pick up if that's the team need, right? Yeah, absolutely. And he did not have a big game on Sunday against the Browns. But that was a game that was a little bit weather affected. And the Patriots, of course, they scored again on defense. And uh, (laughs) they... Edelman went absolute nuts. Dors- you know, it just didn't happen for Dorsett. But I think that there are going to be better days ahead for Philip Dorsett. He's locked in as the Patriots' number one perimeter receiver. Nikhil Harry is going to come back, and people started to talk about him. But uh, he struggled in training camp. He had a couple of nice catches in the preseason, 
but he struggled throughout training camp, throughout OTAs before that. I'm, I'm not even sure that his injury was so so serious that they needed to put him on that IR list to right. begin the year, but they did because I think in part because he wasn't ready. And that was just a way for them to stash him without using one of their roster spots on the 53. And he was eligible to be activated this week, and they did not activate him. So I don't know if they're really counting on him for anything at this point. Maybe maybe he'll pop up and, and help him down the stretch, but I, I'm not so sure about that. You know, Jay Glazer had a report that even after the Patriots traded for Muhammad Sanu, they were still in the market for another receiver, and that doesn't reflect well upon Nikhil Harry. Uh, so right now, Philip Dorsett has a very, very secure role. And, um, I, you know, at, at like 50%, he's only 50% owned. I mean, that's ridiculous. He should be owned in 100% for sure. Yeah, I agree. Now, what about the guy who is on the outs there in New England, Josh Gordon? You and I both talked him up on our preseason pod. Yeah. And there are reports that he might get cut and could sign somewhere else when he's healthy in a, in a couple weeks. What are you doing if you own Gordon? Because, I mean, I know you do in some spots. Are you cutting him? Are you holding him? What's the deal? I cut him, like, because I have, have been, like, literally every league, um, <laughs> which, you know, it didn't pay dividends. But That, that can be nice, though, because then you can cut him in some places and hold him in other deeper formats. And then at least if he goes off, if he does get signed and come back and be good, like, yeah. you don't feel 100% horrible, just 50% horrible, right? No, that's exactly what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's talk about some other receivers here. Alan Lazard, uh, the Packers receiver, 15% owned. This is the second week in a row that Lazard has led the Packers wide receivers in snaps. But this past week, week eight, most of the guys at the top there were pretty close. Lazard, Geronimo Allison, Marquez, Valdez, Scantling were deployed pretty evenly. They each saw between 62 and 67% of Green Bay's snaps. Lazard did lead the charge, though. He had the 67% snap share in that range. He also had more targets than any of those other guys with five targets. Jake Kumaro actually had the second most targets in Week 8 with four. Uh, he's only 2% owned, but th- that was on a much smaller snap share, so I'm, I'm not going to buy into Jake Kumaro too much. But with Lazard specifically, is he a guy you'd be interested in adding this week? Well, first of all, he probably already should have been added. Sure. Yeah, but uh, it looks like not enough people added him based on the ownership percentages. So, yeah, I would. I don't think that the, the, the future is very clear, though. It's not crystal clear because Devontae Adams reports have it that he is supposed to be back this week. And he's a target monster, man. You know, and what we've seen from these guys, especially with Aaron Jones popping up as, you know, a high volume pass catcher, is that these, these receivers are not getting a lot of targets and they have to make do on very small numbers of targets. And they have sometimes like that Marcus Valdez Scantling game where he had two catches for 133 yards and a touchdown was so tilty. He had 13, ran 13 routes <laughs> and he saw three targets, but Hey, you know, when you play Aaron Rodgers, like, and he's playing as efficiently as he is right now, then these guys are going to make do on small numbers, small numbers of targets. But they're going to see even fewer targets when Devontae Adams comes back. So, yeah, I mean, I think that you can pick up Lazard, but I don't think that you can really rely on him. You know, he might be fool's gold at this point. Another player who might be fool's gold is Darius Slayton for the Giants. He's only at 4% ownership, and I would love to say that it would make sense for the Giants to trade Sterling Shepard and maybe give Slayton a larger role, kind of embrace the tank a little bit by trading Shepard away. He's a little redundant with Golden Tate, but... Because it might make sense, that's probably why the Giants won't do it. 
Uh, but do you think Darius Slayton can maintain some fantasy value even when Sterling Shepard returns? Because it seems like he has a little bit of a rapport with Daniel Jones. Yeah, and the Giants, you know, they're such a rudderless ship. They are not tanking at all. They just traded for Leonard Williams. You know, like, <laughs> what, what are they? Do they think they're like competing for something? What a what a strange trade. And and then other reports have them that they're that they're trying to trade other guys. I, I don't I don't get it. Uh, but either way, Darius Slayton, yeah, he, you know, he's only got seven targets over the last two weeks. He does get a lot of air yards per target. Um, he did score two touchdowns against the Lions. He's fast, man. He's fast. He ran he ran four three nine coming out of Auburn, and he's clearly their best perimeter receiver. I don't know. I can't really get a feel for for Sterling Shepard right now because the beat writers have been kind of um, they've kind of hinted that like he might be out a while, but they have a Monday night game coming up extended rest. So it wouldn't surprise me if he came back as soon as Monday night. I don't know because he had multiple concussions because he had one in the preseason and then he had one early in the season. He's going to probably miss more time than most people that, that suffer concussions. But yeah, I mean, I own Darius Slayton in a bunch of spots and I think that he should be way, way, way more owned than 4%. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think that's, that's the real key here is that and, and it's really sad, too, because when you see these ownership numbers, what that really tells you is that there are people who just give up after they lose four games or something like that. It's I mean, it's it's kind of shameful, to be honest, but uh, that, that's that these are the leagues that some people play in. And so we have to talk about these guys. And it's nice to know that if you do need a wide receiver, that Darius Slayton is only four percent out. He's almost certainly going to be available in your league if unless it's like super, super deep or super, super competitive uh, on the same or by the same token. Uh, those Jaguars receivers who could be filling in for D.D. Westbrook, Chris Conley, 3% owned. Keelan Cole, 0% owned. I mean, I, I kind of get the Cole thing just because he hadn't really been involved. But now that Westbrook is out, I think those are guys that you can look at. Uh, I'll rattle off some other higher ownership players. Uh, Mecole Hardman, 33% owned. Uh, another usable fantasy week in Week 8 on limited targets. But Sammy Watkins is back and was much more prominently involved than Hardman was. So I think the correct move is still to fade Hardman, fade Demarcus Robinson, especially while Patrick Mahomes is out. I actually think those guys are are cuttable if you can find somebody better to pick up. Auden Tate, 28% ownership. Alex Erickson, 7% ownership. Those guys are seeing targets for the Bengals, and Tyler Eifert might be on his way out in a trade this week. Uh, the Dolphins guys are still grossly under owned. Devontae Parker, 27%. Preston Williams, 13%. They're both seeing a lot of targets. A.J. Brown with Ryan Tannehill kind of reviving his value. Uh, Brown is only 25% owned. This stuff is silly. Like, these guys should be owned in most leagues. So if they're out there, you can consider all of them. The hard part is just figuring out how to parse through it all, right? Like, if all these guys are available, do you add Auden Tate? Or do you add Devontae Parker? Or do you add A.J. Brown? Evan, just in general, what, I guess, factors go into your analysis when you're making those sorts of decisions? You know, team need, what do I need? But certainly just like how much opportunity that they're getting. And I think that one thing that people place way too much emphasis on is quarterback play uh, with regard to receivers that are getting opportunity. Now, there is like a cliff drop where, you know, the quarterback play is so bad. And we've seen this with like Dwayne Haskins and, you know, Luke Falk. Where Eli Manning just, at times. Eli Manning, like, you know, th- there's a cliff drop that they that you know definitely is is tangible and that that can just torpedo anybody even if they're getting opportunity. But more often, like, 
you know, Mason Rudolph can get the ball to his receivers. I mean, we've seen Deontay Johnson and, and, and Juju, who everyone is just totally all the way out on. We've seen these guys have big games with, with Mason Rudolph. You know, we have, we've seen Cortland Sutton be consistent and productive with Joe Flacco, even though we don't like Joe Flacco. We don't like Mitchell Trubisky, but Allen Robinson is super consistent with good upside. That's one mistake that people just, they put too much emphasis on the quarterback play and not enough emphasis on the opportunity. So the first thing that we should be looking at is the opportunity. And then we boil it down to things like what do we need for our team and, um, you know, all that. I mean, all these guys are fringe, you know, fringe roster worthy. You pick them out because they all should be way owned higher than, than they are right now. But I mean, at the end of the day, they all, they're all are fringy and, you know, they, none of them really has like, you know, wide receiver one or even wide receiver two upside. They're all in that wide receiver three through wide receiver five range. Right. And when you say opportunity, you're not just talking about the targets that they're seeing, like the volume of targets, but you're also talking about the type of targets that they're seeing. Like what are the air yards associated with those targets? You've referenced air yards a couple different times on the show already. And that's something else to look at. And that's one of the reasons why Devonta Parker at 27% ownership just continues to stand out to me every week. Because not only is he getting the target volume, but he's also getting targeted down the field. So even though he might not have the big fantasy numbers every week to show for it, we know that those bigger fantasy games could be coming because he's being targeted deep and he's being targeted frequently. Like it doesn't take many of those targets to connect for him to have a good fantasy day. So now that these bye weeks are starting to roll around, we have four teams on bye this week. Parker is a guy you can look to as a potential fill in, Uh, but that's enough on wide receivers. Let's talk about tight ends quickly. At this point, I think your team is either settled on tight end or it's not. And last week on the show, I talked about how we had, a pretty good variety of players to choose from as potential additions. I'm going to list a lot of the same guys here this week. Dallas Goddard, 20% owned. Jonu Smith, 19% owned. Darren Fells, 18% owned. Cameron Brait, 14% owned. And I hate Noah Fant, but Noah Fant is only 13% owned. Jeff Hireman just injured his knee in week eight. Saw his greatest, uh, Fant saw his greatest snap share of the season. Like all these guys are potentially startable week to week, right? Yes, yes. Poor Noah Fant. Man, he just – he stinks, doesn't he? He's been really bad. <laughs> um, and I've played him in DFS a couple times. That has not gone well. Eight targets, though, in week eight. You mentioned the Hoyerman injury. And it's not – like they're, they're not going to scale back Noah Fant. He's only going to get more opportunity. You know, they have no reason – what are they, two and six? You know, they're two and six. He's their first-round pick. They just lost their other tight end. They just traded Emmanuel Sanders. Like, even though Noah Fant has been atrocious, like the arrow was up on Noah Fant in fantasy football. As strange as that might sound. I like that you mentioned Foster Moreau. He kind of reminds me of the Dallas Goddard to Darren Waller, Zach Ertz. He's had some, some you know, quietly productive games uh, for the Raiders. I really like him in Dynasty, although the Darren Waller extension kind of throws a wrench into that. But I, I just I like him as a prospect. Dallas Goddard, absolutely. I mean, he's like an every week streamer. He's their third receiver. Who do they yeah. have behind Alshon and Ertz? It's Goddard. He's their he's their next guy up. Yeah, and I mean, he, his opportunity is like right there with. He's almost like the two B, you know, to, to Zach Ertz's two A. Um, and then Janu, you know, I wish I would have played him more in daily fantasy this past week. He had an awesome game, career best game. Uh, actually, he had a, a big game, uh, one big game last last year, but. 
He had six for, what, 78 and a touchdown, something like that, against Tampa Bay. I, I didn't love him because his routes run were just were not enough, even in the game before that uh, when Delaney Walker only played five snaps. But he got it done in a great matchup, and, and he absolutely should have a lot more ownership than 19%. This Darren Fells jordan Aiken situation is tough to parse out, but at the end of the day, Darren Fells is getting these red zone targets, man, and Deshaun Watson is looking for him in the red zone. So the lean has got to be toward him, even though his routes run, his snaps, his targets are pretty much the same as Jordan Aikens every week. Yep. The only other guy I want to throw out here is Tyler Croft. He's he's unowned everywhere, uh, and he took four targets away from Dawson Knox. Knox only had one target in week eight. I don't know if you want to be invested in the Bills' tight ends when there are all these other potential guys you could be picking up instead. But this is a situation to kind of keep track of if you're in a really, really deep league. A couple other super deep additions you might look at if you know maybe you don't trust Croft. Uh, Jacob Hollister seems to be the new fill-in for Will Disley in Seattle. Uh, Mike Kosecki for the Dolphins. We'll see what he does tonight, but his targets have been going up the past couple weeks, and he's only 3% owned. I don't like any of these guys a ton. I would much rather have uh, any of the players I mentioned earlier. Uh, but, you know, tight end... You can spin that wheel every week. There, there are always going to be some some guys out there who could potentially score a touchdown. And last week, this week, there have been some guys who have a little bit more upside than that based upon trades and injuries like John o. Smith and Cameron Bright. Uh, let's quickly run through some quarterback talk here, Evan. In two quarterback formats, there aren't a whole lot of guys you could be picking up right now. I saw some people last week start to speculate on Ryan Finley, I guess in anticipation of like an Andy Dalton benching. Like I could see it, but... I don't know if I want to be burning a roster spot on Ryan Finley unless I'm really desperate for a quarterback. Uh, but other than that, you're looking at maybe speculating on Nick Foles or Dwayne Haskins or Matt Schaub if for some reason he wasn't picked up or gets dropped because he's about to go on by. I don't really want to deal with any of these guys. But to dig into Foles, do you think he's getting his job back from Gardner Minshew? Because I don't. Like I don't think that they can give it back to him at this point. No way. No way. What they should be doing is trying to trade Nick Foles to the Bears. Because the Bears, their coach Matt Nagy has history with Nick Foles in both Philadelphia and Kansas City, and the Bears need a quarterback. Now, they would have to perform some salary cap gymnastics for sure, but that's what they should be trying to do with Nick Foles. Gardner Minshew could be the Jaguars franchise quarterback. He is on a minimum salary deal, and he has played way too well. And I mean, he's, he's had some downs, but he's mostly been up. And he's just coming off his best game of the season against uh, the Jets. Their pass defense, it's not super imposing, but uh, it's definitely not, it definitely is not like a, a walkover pass defense. They blitz a lot. They had not, I think they had only given up like five or six passing touchdowns uh, in the first six games. And Minshew lit him up, man. And, uh, you know, maybe had his, arguably his best game of the season. So, no, absolutely not. I think that the Jaguars should and will stick with Gardner Minshew, you know, in, in like Scott Fishbowl, like I've been riding uh, Joe Flacco and, and Daniel Jones, and our, my, my team is actually pretty good. But now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, scuffling, man. I'm, I'm going to have to like put in a bid on, who's this guy, Brandon Allen, who's been with the Jags and the Rams. I mean, I'm, people, are, people need to look at these names. Uh, Haskins could could be starting. Ooh, at Buffalo, that is brutal. No thanks. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Matt Ryan is uh, is expected back in Week Ten, uh, so I don't think that you look at Matt Schaub, Ryan Finley. He looked good this preseason, 
he's a guy that I think people should probably be looking at in Scott Fishbowl in, you know, deep two quarterback leagues. I'm um, looking at these other guys. Uh, Darnold has such a good schedule down the stretch. Boy, is he even playing bad. And it starts right away here against the Dolphins. This is a get-right game for Sam Darnold. If he does not get right here, like, I'm starting to worry about him long-term. Yeah, it's he's got to put it together in that game. And I really expected him to do it against Jacksonville because, again, they had lost Jalen Ramsey to trade. I figured I mean, there's no way he was going to look as bad as he did against the Patriots. That was like the perfect storm of right. a bad matchup for the Jets, whereas the Jaguars, while their defense is solid, it's it's definitely beatable. And I expected Darnold to do a lot more in that game. I picked the Jets to cover. I picked uh, the over in that game. The over did hit, thankfully, but I the Jets were nowhere close to covering against Jacksonville. But yeah, I, I agree. Darnold has to put it together against the Dolphins in Week 9. He's definitely worth some streaming consideration. Um, some other guys to throw out along those same lines. Uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick on the other side of the matchup against the Jets defense that Gardner Minshew just tore up. Uh, Daniel Jones, your boy from Scott Fishbowl, is at home against Dallas. Not a great matchup, but Jones has been good enough with garbage time rushing stats to where I think he's startable in any given week. And then Trubisky uh, at Philadelphia. Again, not a matchup that I, I really like, but Philadelphia has been beatable in the secondary. So you can maybe pinch your nose and, and throw Trubisky into your lineup if you have to. The guy I really want to ask you about here, though, is Cam Newton. He's playing at Tennessee, assuming he can come back. And that's my big question for you. If Newton plays in week nine, are you comfortable rolling him out in your lineups? Or are you taking more of a wait and see approach uh, with that first game back from injury? Obviously, you'd start him in two quarterback leagues, you know. Sure. But would you want to stream him against the Titans? That's a good question. The Titans have a good defense, man. They do not give up points. This past week was the first game that they've given up more than 20 points in a game all season, and it was what, like the Bucks had like 23 or something. So I'd probably want to give him a week just based on the matchup, based on how long he's been out, based on how bad he looked early in the season. I'd probably give him a week and then look into starting him in week 10. Let's talk about some defensive streamers next. And I think the first three teams I'm going to throw out are probably owned in most leagues. They're owned in 48% or more of Yahoo leagues. The Seattle Seahawks are facing Jameis Winston at home. The Carolina Panthers on the other side of that Titans matchup are at home against Ryan Tannehill. And then the Indianapolis Colts are on the road at Pittsburgh against Mason Rudolph. The Colts are a little bit more of a borderline play to me, but I think that if the Seahawks are available, if the Panthers are available, those are your clear top two defensive streamers this week. But if you have to dig a little deeper, you're looking at the Eagles against Chicago, 39% owned. The Packers at the Chargers, 37% on. And I say at the Chargers, but that'll be mostly Packers fans there in L.A. Uh, the Cowboys at the Giants, 31% on. Daniel Dimes has given up his fair share of turnovers, even if he is putting up points. Uh, the Cleveland Browns at Denver, 24% owned. And their defense hasn't been as, as good as we want it to be. But again, playing against Joe Flacco, that's not a, a hateful matchup. Uh, one of the ones I really like is a lot deeper, though. The Washington defense at Buffalo Washington has scored five or more fantasy points in every game since week three. They're averaging 7.2 fantasy points per game in that span. And Buffalo, their week nine opponent, allows the eighth most points to opposing fantasy defenses. So as horrendous as you'll feel putting Washington into your lineup, if you're in a deep league, if you're scraping the bottom of the barrel for a streamer, I think you can look at them too. Uh, Do any of these teams stand out to you, Evan, as like a really, really good defensive streamer in week nine? 
a lot of them do actually. I'm trying to pick out which one I like the best. I, I like the Browns. I like the Browns. I mean, it's going to be Brandon Allen. Joe Flacco got ruled out with a neck injury. Oh, I so, missed that. Yeah, yeah. So it's going to be Brandon Allen. So the Browns make some sense. And that offensive line for Denver, it's been a trash can, especially in terms of pass protection. Like their left tackle, Garrett Bowles, cannot block anybody without holding. Dallas Cowboys at the Giants. Yeah, you mentioned Daniel Jones. I mean, he's coming off a really big, really big game. He still has 12 turnovers in six starts and has taken 21 sacks, which is, you know, a little bit over three sacks per game. Um, that's good production for a defense. Certainly, certainly the Eagles at home against Mitch Trubisky and the Bears. You know, the Eagles' strength defensively is where the Bears' theoretical strength is. And then, you know, forcing Mitch Trubisky to throw – I mean that you know that that's never a bad thing for a defense. <laughs> so the you know Philadelphia definitely checks that box. Yeah, these guys up at the top, you know, Carolina, Colts against Mason Rudolph, Seahawks. I I love the Seahawks this week and Yeah, you have to. It's just out of control with Jameis Winston and he has especially been bad against zone defenses. This is something that we've highlighted at Establish the Run via Sports Info Solutions. Jameis Winston has just been atrocious against zone defense. And we were really on uh, Titans defense this past week. And, you know, of course, it wound up having four turnovers. Seahawks play heavy, heavy zone. Uh, they've got the 12th man there. They got back Jerron Reed, uh, their stud interior pass rusher. Uh, Jameis on the road. He's probably going to throw for 400 yards, three touchdowns, four interceptions, and two lost fumbles, and six sacks taken. What do you think? Book it. I like it. That's a, it's a bold prediction if I've ever heard one. <laughs> I think that's a good one to go out on, Evan, man. I, I have some other stuff on the show notes here, but I feel like I've kept you long enough, and I, I know you got to get back to grinding that film and looking at all the different stats to kind of shape up your Week 9 takes. So uh, why don't you let the folks know where they can find you on social media and tell them a little bit more about what you got going on over at EstablishTheRun.com. Yeah, just uh, check me out at Evan Silva on Twitter at EstablishTheRun.com. We've got Offensive line versus defensive line matchups from Brandon Thorne, one of the best offensive and defensive line analysts in the game. Uh, we got Dwayne McFarland, who does an, an unbelievable job uh, with his utilization report. You know, nothing more important than uh, volume and opportunity in fantasy football, and he's no one's better at breaking that down than him. Uh, I break down every single game in my matchups column. Pat Thorman does uh, the, does our, our pace and our um, snaps per game analysis to uh, help you avoid situations like last week where you know you you're starting dudes on the Chargers like I did and you start Mike Williams and the team only runs 42 plays and he gets three targets and Austin Eckler gets like four touches and then of course Josh Hermsmeyer with his uh, air yards by low model. The air yards by load model has been hot this season too. That mm -hmm. is that has been a, a fun one to watch, kind of uh, crystallize each and every week. Uh, Evan, thanks again for coming on the show, listeners. If you want to follow me, you can find me on Twitter at Greg Sauce. Don't forget to take advantage of that Halloween sale we have at 444.com. It's going till Thursday, so click that red button up in the upper right-hand corner of the page that says subscribe, and you'll see all the great deals that we have going on for whatever level of subscription you want to get to. Uh, I'll be back again next week. So until then, thanks for listening to the Most Accurate Podcast.